Open your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 4. We're going to pick up verse 13 and plow our way all the way to the end of the chapter. So there's a lot, there's a lot of work to do, and, and some of the pieces, if I had my druthers, I'd take more time with than we can. Okay, but we have, we're kind of on a, a tract here, redemption-wide, and so we're going to deal with verse 13 to verse 25, uh, again, in chapter 4 of Romans. I've met so many people that are new uh, to Gilbert in the last couple of weeks that I'm convinced that most of you haven't gone on the whole trip of Romans with us, so I, I do want to give you just a quick snapshot so you can leave here, at least with handlebars, on what we've been through so far. Romans, some have said, and I would probably agree, is the greatest, greatest letter in the Bible. Not that you should or could pick better things that God has said than others. But if you had to leave home with one letter, maybe Romans would be it because it describes everything you need to know about your problem and God's solution to the problem right? Sin and, and a savior. And so we have been through a lot of that journey together. We started in chapter one and went to uh, the end of chapter three. I think we did several months on sin, which was a lot of yucks. Everyone had fun with that. Just our failure, our sickness, and the brokenness. And it, we're far more twisted and broken than, than we ever feared. We got to chapter three, the end of chapter three, and, and wonderful flood of God's grace. Everything you just sang, I was standing over the side watching you sing, and you were really getting it, this idea of, of grace received, right? Redemption from Jesus to people who don't deserve it. And that's what Paul introduces us to, this wonderful story of grace, this credited righteousness that you, you can't work for, you can't earn, and God doesn't even look at your, your works as, as worth observing. He just covers you in righteous robes, right? Sin is punished, righteousness comes, we are set free. That's the story we've seen so far. In chapter four, this is, I think, week uh, four on chapter four. And chapter four was basically exhibit a illustration of everything Paul has been talking about. Or potentially, maybe Paul assumes some questions that would come up in an audience listening to this thing of sin and then God's righteousness. Now, wait a minute, Paul, I got a question for you. Is there a possible exception to your rule that everyone needs a savior, that no one can be good enough. And so maybe someone have, has presented Paul with the, the, the observation of Abraham. Maybe someone has said to Paul, hey, man, wasn't he a great guy? Isn't he our father of faith? Isn't he someone, the patriarch of our, of our beliefs? Isn't he someone special to God? And so maybe, maybe someone's presented the question to him. Either way, Paul brings up in chapter four this whole illustration of Abraham. First week, we looked at works. Um, is it possible that Abraham is the one guy out there who did enough to make God notice and, and to be pleased with him? And so we looked in the first nine verses. The reality of it was that Abraham had problems too, just like us. And the, and the kind of the weight of the passage was this journey back to Genesis where Abraham believed that God would promise him a people and a place and a redeemer. And the text tells us that Abraham believed God, faith in God, in his promise, and he had a credited righteousness, a ledger-to-ledger -ledger transformation, right? A debt ledger was wiped clean and righteousness was put in its place. And that's what, that's what the first nine verses say about works, if, if you were going to look at a man like Abraham. Last week, Jake took us through circumcision, and circumcision simply is a discussion about heritage or lineage. Is there a possibility that being who you are, from a right family maybe, um, that that would matter to God. There'd be a merit there. And so we looked at circumcision specifically as just a sign, a sign that righteousness has come by faith. It wasn't something that changed him. It wasn't something that saved him. Circumcision was just an outward sign of a covenant God, a God who makes promises, and a people who receive it. That's the story of what Abraham did with circumcision, that righteousness that he received is available to, to all. 
And so this week we add, uh, I would say, the last argument of uh, Paul using the illustration of Abraham, and it is the argument of law. Now, I want to read verse 13 and kind of give some conditions to it before we dig into it, but read verse 13 with me. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. This is his last argument, specifically talking about now the law. Now, the question is, which law? What what are we referring to here? Uh, James Boyce suggests that it isn't the Mosaic law. Now, here's why it matters. Now, I'll get to this in a little bit. The, The definite article that describes a specific kind of law is not seen in this text. In fact, if if you want to deal with the same subject matter, you could go to Galatians, where Paul is dealing with a church, a a predominantly Gentile church, having some Judaizers. These were hyper-spiritual Jewish guys showing up in the church saying, Jesus is cool, but you got to add circumcision and the law, the Mosaic law, to Jesus, and that's how you're saved. And so Paul writes the letter of Galatians saying, let them be anathema if they add anything to Jesus alone. And he talks specifically about the law, right? The definite article, the specific Mosaic law. Well, here he doesn't use the definite article in front of law, and Boyce suggests that he's talking about morality. Not like there's a a list of the rules that the the Hebrew people had that if you do them, if you could do them, that somehow God would stamp you okay. This was really Paul's discussion about morality and doing good things. And uh, to a predominant uh, Gentile audience, this would make sense, right? Uh, That he would refer to this trying to be good enough, because here's why it matters to you, because I've never met anybody in my entire life so far um, who has said, no, I'm trying to fix this problem I have by obeying all the Old Testament scriptures, all of the law of Moses. Not anybody in here is probably saying, I choose to follow the OT law. But most of you in here, I would say everybody in here, at least for a season, has tried to be good enough. In fact, if you're not careful, just pick the day, pick the moment, pick the hour, we work that way. In spite of what we believe about Jesus, in spite of what we need about righteousness, sometimes we think that our good days matter more to God um, than our failures, right? We're, we're kind of insecure that way. We're absolutely convinced uh, somewhere down in us that little part of the remnant of sin and flesh still wants to feel like if it does the right thing, God is more happy today than he was yesterday. And so all this wonderful story of provision righteousness, a covered robe of Christ over you, we don't really want that sometimes. Sometimes we want God to notice, hey, you know that guy that I should have knocked out? I didn't. Isn't that a win today, God? Um, <laughs> We like to keep score and, and to, hear, uh, to hear what the Bible says about our good deeds, that God doesn't find them commendable at all. That's offensive. It bothers everyone, at least sometime in their life. It, it's a, to some, it's like a horrible, horrible moment to, to see that God sees our good, weeks as a wa- uh, good works as a waste of time. So that's why I think Paul is dealing with this idea of trying to be good or morality, And one more just kind of evidence to this, if you want to be honest. The argument in circumcision that Paul used to describe the fact that Abraham's righteousness wasn't connected to that activity was to talk about timing. He said, well, let's talk about Abraham's righteousness. He was circumcised 14 years after he was declared righteous. So how could circumcision have anything to do with his position with God? Clearly not. Well, Paul brings up the same argument in Galatians saying, well, if we're going to talk about law, the law showed up 430 years after Abraham. So if, if there was going to be a way for Abraham to obey the law, he didn't have it. So it's a, a moot point. But here the argument isn't about timing, okay? 
The argument is just a real simple contrast and compare. It's like learning why things are bad and learning why things are good just by looking at what they offer. And that's what this first couple of verses in Romans uh, 4, 13 tell us here. Um, I happen to be one of those learners. Um, I don't know if you're sympathetic, but I'm a hands-on learner. If I buy a piece of equipment or I buy something from my house and it comes with an instruction manual, I go, whew. I throw the instruction manual away and I proceed to figure this thing out on my own because I, I learned that way, right? Now, that also comes with a lot of failure. My son will laugh at me when I end up breaking something to replace it, but it, it, regardless, that's who I am by nature, okay? I had a job. Uh, my first construction job was in 1986, and I was working for the Chicago Laborers Union, and the second week in, they gave me a jackhammer. Now, I'd never, I knew what a jackhammer was, but never worked one. Well, this 120-pound beast, they just hand it to you, and the old guys laugh, all right? That's all they do. They say, go at it, Junior. And I had all the energy in the world. And there was a mile of sidewalk to break, and I just, <clears throat> by the end of the day, my back was ruined, right? And all they did was giggle at me, because you don't know how to use it. And they let me go through the pain of experiencing the weight of this jackhammer, picking up 120 pounds a thousand times all day long to prove that, hey, there's a better way. There's a better way. Maybe use your feet. Maybe lean into it with your legs. Like drag it. Don't pick it. That kind of stuff it would make sense now. But that's how I learn. And that's, that's exactly what Paul is doing here when he's talking about if you're going to offer something good to God, then just look at what it costs you. Okay, so here's how he does it. He uh, does it by showing us the bad of works and the good of faith. And he mentions three negative things and three positive things in the first several verses. So let's read verse 14 and I'll show you the negative. Here's what Paul says. For, it is, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void for the law brings wrath. There's three things right there that you notice in that passage, three words. The words are null, uh, the word is void, and the word is wrath. They should stick out to you because Paul has just described to you what works can do for you. And the first thing he says is that if you choose to go on your good effort, faith is null right? It's null. It means empty. It means void. The, the New International Version translates it of no value. And here's why. Because faith and work are in opposition to each other. They're going different directions with totally different outcomes and different points altogether. You can't be saved by both. If you choose one by, by automatic, you reject the other. That's how it works. Maybe this will help you. We've said this in the past, but law is all about man's ability, if there was such a thing, and grace is all about God's ability. And you can't have them both at the same time. If you choose to say, listen, God, notice me, notice me, notice what I do, notice that I'm different than others, then the standard goes through the roof. It's perfection and it's pointless, right? It's, as he says here, empty or void. So um, if you're trusting in works, you're not trusting in God, you can't have both. Make sense? Second negative thing he says about going it on your own is that the promise becomes void. What's the promise? The promise is that there is now salvation, that you can have God, that you can have a future, all right? But the promise is void when you go it alone, or the NIV calls it worthless, in other words, choosing a moral way cancels God's promise, and, and here's why. If the standard that you want is work, then it's very simple, hard but simple. Just be perfect. That's it. 
Just be perfect. And we've already learned in Romans 2 that no one's perfect, right? All, everyone has fallen short of God's glorious standard. And there isn't a single person, I don't care if it's your grandmother, I don't care who you think is the sweetest thing that ever lived on the planet, everyone comes up short to God's perfected standard, right? That's what we've learned. Which proves why doing it on your own is a worthless thing. It can't save anybody. Following a set of moral laws doesn't save anybody. Lloyd-Jones says that law means failure. That's what it means. As soon as you put a law out there, you break it. That's the point. So the third thing he brings up as a negative in verse 15 is this idea of wrath. This is the part that nobody likes to talk about. This is the part that's losing a lot of, uh, a lot of church people in our day and age. There are pastors, quote unquote, who are writing books saying there is no such thing as God's wrath. There are denominations, religious denominations, who somehow describe that there are different versions of heaven, but there is no wrath. There is no angry God about sin who will judge your sin forever and ever in a place called hell, a burning and a con- without ever being consumed. That kind of gory de- depiction of how God reacts to sinners who say, take me, uh, take my morality, take whatever uh, on face value, God will not, right? And so there's a wrath to it. And so uh, here's what Paul says. It doesn't make any sense. The only thing the law can do, only thing righteousness knows, and I say that quote, quote, unquote, like the loose version of righteousness, the only thing it can do is find you guilty. It's all it can do. It's all it can do is find you condemned, right? It's interesting, too, to note that the first couple of consequences are results of, of, of going it on your own. We... Uh, we don't get something from God. We don't get his promise and we don't get faith. This one, we get something. <laughs> the only thing we get is we get his wrath. <laughs> it's not a gift. It's completely opposite of what we want. The law has nothing to help us with. Its job isn't to help us, but to reveal us. Now, some of you might be sitting here today confused a little bit because after all, we're talking about maybe good things like treating people kind, or even if you wanted to include what God has said, specifically laws, because after all, didn't God give the law, right? Didn't he say these things? Didn't he say to go do these things? So if the law is helpful, the question could be asked, then is it bad? It's the question that's going to come up in Romans chapter 7, which we're not going to get into right now, but that's an obvious conclusion. We get all done looking at what law can do. Someone could accuse the law that God has given as a waste of time, and it's possibly bad, right? Well, that's not, that's not what we're going to um, find at all in the text. I'll give you a little sneak preview. No, it doesn't make the law bad. The law is holy, and the law is good, okay? But as uh, James Boyce said about the law, speaking of it as a mirror that reflects our problem, He says that a mirror isn't defective if it can't wash your face. Make sense? Its point is to reveal us, to expose us, to leave us needy and wanting without any conclusion on our own. It says I'm dirty, right? And just because it can't clean me up doesn't make it bad. Well, that's not what the law is supposed to do. The law's job isn't to clean us. Jesus cleans us, amen? Jesus makes us righteous. He transforms our lives and our hearts. He covers us with his righteous robes. In other words, the law isn't bad because it can't save you. That wasn't its intention. It basically leaves us peeled back and exposed, and it pushes us to Jesus. That's what the law does. 
Verses 16 and 17, Paul reveals to us the positives. And we've gone to these many times before, so I'm going to repeat them quickly. Uh, some of the writers on this text describe this like getting to the top of Mount Everest. Now, you've climbed over every rock, every stream, every crevice, and you're standing at the top now looking back over every rock and crevice you know, you've climbed over, describing it again. So that's a little bit what this is like here. But Paul talks about the things we get if we receive this righteousness of Christ. In verse 16, he says this. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Three things here uh, to counterbalance those three negative things that he's mentioned already. One is that faith brings grace. There is no other way. We've said it over and over many, many times. I had somebody write me an email, a long email saying, can't we get to the meat? Church, listen up. This is the meat, okay? This is the meat. If we go to something else, we're moving on from meat, okay? This is the meat of everything anybody ever needed to hear, that somehow sinners can be saved by grace through faith. That's the best story humankind have ever heard before, right? Amen? So what we need to hear from Paul here is that you want to see the positives of this not going it on your own, not using works, then understand this, that faith is the key that brings God's grace. Grace is God's unmerited, unearned favor for us, apart from any human works, and it comes that one and only way. It's the opposite of law, because the law only tells us what to do and the requirements, and it reveals our exposed inabilities. So grace is free by faith in the work. Now, you gotta get this next phrase, that God alone has done. If you put anything in God and you or God and it, you've lo- you lose it all. Faith, right? Grace comes through faith in the work that God has completed for you. That's the point of it all, right? Faith brings everything that God can provide for us. That's the key to everything good from God. All of his blessings come by faith, amen? Okay, so here's the first thing he says about going it with faith, and that is that you get grace this way. That seems to make sense. Here's the second thing that we've told you many times before. He talks about this guaranteed to his offspring. In other words, salvation, guys, is not possible. It's certain. And you gotta get this. God has not made a way to make it possible for you if you hold it together and to believe enough or smart enough or good enough that somehow maybe if you hold your fingers together, maybe someday you'll get into heaven. That's not what this is all about. Jesus died for a people and everybody he died for will be saved and it's certain, amen? Salvation is guaranteed according to Paul by faith. And if you choose to work your way to fix your own problem, to be good enough, like I said before, the, the, the conclusion, the math equation is simple. Just be perfect. <laughs> well, that's not possible. And so people who try, and you've tried it, I've tried it, I've tried to fix my own problems before, and guess what I end up with? Insecurity. It never goes away. I have a day where I feel like I've done some good things, and suddenly my chest bows out a little bit, and then the next day something bad happens, and I'm freaked out that it's all over. Right? I'm terrified that there's any promise available to me at all. There is no hope. There is no surety. There is no security. There is nothing there for people who want to work their way to fix their own problems. And I told you this a couple of weeks ago, and you just need to anchor into this. You are, you are no more loved on your best day than you are on your worst day. That's sinking in at all? 
You thinking about your worst day? You thinking about the day that you couldn't tell anybody about because it's really that bad? If you put your faith and trust in Christ, you aren't more loved in your worst moment of your life than you are when you're doing the best things you've ever done because you don't stand on your own righteousness. You stand on the righteousness of Christ alone, amen? Period, end of story. So it makes it certain. One last positive he says here is that salvation then becomes available to all. Verses 16 and 17, he says, it's not just Abraham's descendants, but all those who put their faith like Abraham did, right? Not just to Jewish people who follow Old Testament law, not just to good people who are better than some people, but to everyone, like the Spirit says in Revelation 22, whoever will may come. I look at this room, I don't know you. I mean, I know some of you. Well, let's just say it represents every type. Every type. There isn't a single person in here the gospel isn't available to. I don't care how good you think you are or how bad you really are. I don't care at all in between. The gospel is available to you and your mess by faith in Christ alone. Amen? That's the truth of the story. Now, here in the last part of this passage, um, Paul begins to lock down his argument for faith and he brings up Abraham again as an illustration to illustrate faith. And he thinks clearly that there's something to learn from Abraham and so we need to take a look and see what there is here. Uh, what kind of faith did Abraham have? And let's look at verses 18 uh, through 22. I'll just read it and then we'll pull it apart. Again, coming back to Abraham, Paul says, in hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he's been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's why... His faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, there's a lot in here, but let me just tell you the things that stick out to me, right? In verse 18, that phrase, he hoped, uh, in hope he believed against all hope. In other words, his Abraham's faith was faith in God's promises. Like he heard what God said, and he said, okay, I believe that. We have the promises of God in our laps. We have the promise of God that he's offered to us, and, and so uh, Abraham believed in God. So, rule of thumb, and you should know this already, your faith is only as good as its object, right? It wasn't about Abraham at that point. It wasn't like Abraham stands out as the pinnacle of all faith in humankind. Say, wow, look at Abraham. He, he rocks the faith category. Everyone else needs to follow Abraham. No, he was clear about God, okay? Um, 1977, I was looking for fun, okay? And my friend and I saw, we worked... Uh, on a farm, and on this farm was an empty grain silo. You know what a grain silo is? Everybody know? Big, huge, singular kind of a thing. It didn't have a top on it. There was no grain. It was kind of abandoned. And I decided it would be fun to climb that grain silo and see if we could repel off it. So I started rooting through my dad's garage. I was 16 years old. I found a couple of old ropes that he had lying around, tied them together, and then went to the top of the silo. So it's about 50 feet in the air. And I climb off the edge, and I tie a rope around my waist, right? I get it all ready. He's sitting there waiting. I thought I'd go first. And so I get off the edge and I lean back into an old rope. And I swear it was a God moment, right? I look up at the rope and right where I'm looking, it snaps. It's right there. And like a cat for 40 feet, I'm just trying to find my feet, right? God saved me that day to tell you this story, all right? Your faith is only as good as the object. 
I believed in some stupid rope. Didn't work, right? I got off. I was confident. I climbed off the edge of the wall. I put my weight on it. Rope let me down, okay? Here's the point. Abraham wasn't a stud when it came to faith, but God was. When Abraham trusted, he trusted in something that would always deliver and could never not deliver. We're not saved because of the strength of our faith. We're not saved because our faith measures up to some kind of standard. We're not saved because it's stable. We're saved because our God makes a promise. Amen? We're saved because right here in these pages it says I'm a sinner and that Jesus really did pay it all. I'm saved because God can be trusted and he can't lie and he never changes and he's more than able. Amen? That's why. It's anchored in the character of God, not, not me, not you, not Abraham. He believed in the promises of God. There's another aspect you learn from this passage about Abraham's faith, and that is this. It was a faith in spite of obstacles. Do you see that verses 19 where he says, it didn't weaken when he considered his own body that was 100 years old and capable of doing what God said was going to happen? Right? God said, You're gonna, there are going to be a great number of people that come from Abraham, and it says here that his faith was not weakened by that. In spite of the obstacles. He believed that he was a, an old man without kids, that somehow it could become a multitude of people and descendants. He believed that a body that was incapable of producing could produce. He believed that if I took my son, the promised son, Isaac, and I put him on the altar and I killed him, that this God could also raise him from the dead. He believed that. And many, many other things he believed. He believed against all hope. That phrase really just means that he believed that God could do miracles. So here's my question to you. Where are you hopeless right now? You can let that sink in for a little bit because everybody has a spot like that. What part of your life are you now responding to with hopelessness? Is it a, a child who's just acting like an idiot, ruining his life and you're crushed? And you've prayed and you've prayed and you just doubt and you want to control and you want to freak on the whole thing. Is it that or is it possibly that you have a, a sickness that you can't believe God would care or do something about? Is it a financial mess that you find yourself in? Is it some kind of marriage that it's about to explode because of hurt or sin against each other or secrets that you're keeping? Is it, is it possible that you're dealing with some defeating sin and you can't win? You don't know how to win and just keeps kicking your hiney? What are you doubting God for right now? Now, here's the part where I kind of, I had this blank space in these pages. I didn't know what to put in it. I asked a couple of guys this week, do you think, do you think Christians believe in miracles? And I know that right answer. Like, you're stupid if you say, no, no, don't believe it. <laughs> but I'm asking you to be honest about how you live. Do you live as if the obstacles are no big deal to God? And he does obstacles. Do you live that way? Or do you look at your circumstance and just keep whining and keep managing and keep coping and keep trying to fix it? Do you manage around it? Are you like Abraham who says, you know what? God promised me a people. Let's get the maid. So... I'm very sensitive to this. I struggle in my own life to, when I've prayed like, like gargantuan prayers. I'm convinced that it's not God. Um, it could be timing. 
but I've, you got to fight for believing that God does these things. And so Abraham shows up in our story as an example of faith simply because the impossible God did. And he believed that he could do the impossible. That's believing God of miracles. Amen? And that's the question you got to wrestle with. Abraham's faith was there when the solution wasn't there. And that's what we have to know about this faith, this faith that saves. Here's another aspect of his faith. It was a fully convinced faith, verses 21 and 22. Now, if you've been paying attention and have been here a couple weeks, you should have questions for me, and I'm assuming that you'll have them. There are phrases like this. Back up to verse 19. He did not weaken in faith. Verse 20, no distrust made him waver. Or at the end of verse 20, he grew strong in his faith. Verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do. So there's four phrases right there that make it look like he had some kind of extra measure of faith. And if you were paying attention to what I taught you a couple weeks ago, I told you Abraham had an average Joe faith. Like us, a struggler. He was a struggler. I used his illustrations like uh, when God said to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to leave your people, leave your land and go to a place I've got promised for you. Abraham couldn't go alone. He had to take Lot. He scared. When he gets to the place that God promised, they run out of food because there's a famine. Abraham takes matters in his own hand, leaves and goes to Egypt again because he's afraid. When he gets to Egypt, he's convinced that because his wife is so beautiful, they'll all want to kill him to get to her. And so he lies and says it's his sister. He did that a couple of times. When the promise of God took too long, he listened to his wife Sarah and slept with his maid to have Ishmael, the son, and and offered it to God like, okay, God, here's the solution. (laughs) When God told him when he was 100 years old, now's the time, we're going to do this, Abraham laughed out loud. All I'm telling you, is that even though it looks by looking at these phrases like he didn't weaken, he had no distrust, he grew strong in his faith, fully convinced. How can these both descriptions be true? I think because they describe the same man with his focus on two opposing places. And you're going to find relation in this too because I think it's all of us. Abraham struggled with fear when he was busy managing his problems independent of God. And in the same circumstance, at some different moment in time when he focused on God's power in the midst of his circumstances, his faith is now described as unwavering, growing in strength, and fully convinced. Now, does that sound familiar at all to anybody in this room? It's okay, I know. It's all right. Everybody in here has a moment where what we know about God is greater than what we're going through, and we choose to believe. And then there's moments, maybe more moments than we'd like, where we're more bothered by our circumstances and we apply our own personal control and management to make them better, right? And one looks like fear and one looks like faith. One looks like I'm cowering, uh, running from God's offering, and the other one looks like I'm a mountain of faith, right? One looks different than the other. Have you ever been paralyzed by some circumstance in your life, like some big deal, and you were just trying to grip it to make it happen so that the circumstance would change. Conversely, have you ever had faith swell to con- like courageous proportions simply because you stopped looking at the problem and started looking at your God? Well, if you have, and I know you have, then you're just like Abraham. It's the same Abraham, a faith that Abraham had. He had a faith that one moment was weak and one moment was strong. And here we, he, we see his belief in the promises of God in, the, in those, those moments of, of, of potential doubt he trusted. There, there's one more part of his faith that's not like explicit in the text. It's kind of written around in the text. And that is the story of Abraham reveals that he had a faith that acted. 
Okay, I'm gonna just tell you this, and you should know this already. Faith that doesn't move its feet isn't legit. It needs to move its feet. Not perfectly, um, not uh, in a way that makes you feel like you're okay with God based on what you do. Just a, a believing kind of move your feet faith. Now, I'll give you a couple examples of Abraham. In spite of his fear and his laughter and his trying to solve his problem, you know, and doing all those things, Abraham actually did things. So Abraham's name means father. That's joke one, okay? If you're an old man without kids and you have to go, who are you? I'm Abraham. <laughs> You know, it's just kind of a standing, running joke. And then God says, Abraham, we're going to do something for you. Change your name to Abraham, which means father of multitudes. Now, when Abraham introduced himself to the neighbors about this, the joke got bigger. Abraham had to put his pride out on the line every time God said, listen, I'm going to promise you this. I'm going to do this for you. Let me suggest to you, even, even a expression of disobedience turns into a movement of faith. When after Ishmael was born, Ishmael is the son that came from him sleeping with his wife's maid, right? It was, it was Abraham's solution to the problem. God came to him and said, listen, he's not the one. Send him out. Get rid of him. Now, here's the father who loves his son, had to get rid of his son in order to believe in the promise of God. I'm going to suggest to you that it was a faith that acted. And the story you all know is when Isaac was born, right? He's some 13 years old or whatever. And God says, all right, take him and sacrifice him. We, we, we see no argument in the text. We just see that Abraham obeyed. Again, a faith that acted. He trusted in God. I'm going to suggest that we need to look at our lives and look at for moments to take risks in our faith. Because I know you believe it. Like if I gave you the quiz, you'd answer the right answer. I know you would. When the moment of push comes, take the step of faith. Believe it and act on it. Now, I want to finish the way Paul finishes this section of chapter 4. And he does two things. One is he reminds us again that this credited righteousness is available to all. That's the, in fact, that's the only way God saves anybody. And then he finishes with this wonderful thought of the resurrection. And I'll, I'll tell you why in just a second. Let's read 22 through 25. Now, again, he's talking about this convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Listen, this righteousness is the only way. This imputed, given to us from God in spite of what we are, he gives it to us. This righteousness is the only way anybody in here who's ever lived can be saved and receive grace. It's, it's the only offering. It's what we share with Abraham. It's faith. It's faith. But he finishes with this last thought of the resurrection. If you've been paying attention to the text, this is the first time Paul's brought up the resurrection. In fact, every time he talks about how we're saved, he's talking about the blood of Jesus. He talks about his death, not his resurrection. So I just simply ask the question, why, why here would he bring up the resurrection when, like in chapter 5, verse 9, he says, since therefore you've been justified by his blood. He's, he's been talking about how it's made right. He's used the death of Christ multiple times already to talk about how it's made right. Why now the resurrection? Here's why. You ready? Because the resurrection is God's proof that everything he said is true. That's what's got to sink into your bones. God put on display the reality, the certainty of everything we're talking about by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's proof provided for our benefit that our sin is fully paid for. 
Sin and death didn't defeat Jesus. We walk in that freedom. The resurrection tells us that there's a God and he's true and he can be believed. It tells us that Jesus is the son of God who came to do and accomplish what he did. The, the resurrection tells us about judgment, that it's real and it's coming if you go it alone. The, the res resurrection tells us that all who believe in this risen Lord will be justified. It tells us that we're all truly going to live again if we trust in Christ. And there's victory over sin. Amen? I mean, Paul has only brought up Abraham to make a point that he's made a thousand times already so far. And he finishes his discussion on morality or circumcision or works of Abraham, and he, he suggests to us, listen, it's certain because it's anchored in Jesus. And by the way, church, he rose from the dead, and in his last sentence here, it's almost like, there, deal with that. He rose. It's, it's over. It's settled. Now, I thought of some of you who were wondering about, well, where do I go get some of this faith? Because I need that faith. I'm struggling. L let me just tell you how into your faith God is. In uh, Hebrews chapter 11, we see this, some have called it the hall of fame of faith. All these Old Testament characters come up as examples of faith because in the beginning of chapter 11, it describes faith as trusting in things you don't see, you can't feel, you can't touch. Like it's putting hope in that. And, and then it goes on to show these, these illustrations of these people of which Abraham's a part of that too. When it gets to chapter 12, and I want you to see what, how much God is into your faith. Look at what he says in chapter 12. After looking at all those examples, he says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now watch this phrase. Listen very careful. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let me quiz you. Ready? Who gives you faith? Who guards your faith? Jesus. Jesus. Who perfects your faith? Jesus. If you've sat here this morning and you're going, well, I don't think I act like Abraham in my circumstances. Trust me, if you put your faith and trust in Christ, he's going to get you there. He's going to grow it because he's not only the author of it, the sustainer of it, he's the perfecter of it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this truth. I thank you that it overwhelms and superabounds over my doubts and fears. And God, the work that you've done in sinner's heart just amazes us. These songs we sing today, God, they're legitimately true from our heart to you. I pray today that we'd walk out of here believing uh, that you're the one who does the miracle of life, new life. That whenever there's obstacles that look insurmountable, God, you're the one who uh, has more than enough power to uh, rescue us in those moments. So my prayer specifically is for that person in this room today who is struggling. Maybe it's their marriage, maybe it's their home, maybe it's their career, maybe it's whatever. Um, God, they're, they're struggling to believe that you care. God, my prayer is that you deliver them. I pray that you grow them, that you perfect them for your glory, we pray. Amen.